Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The Cruel Sea by Nicholas Montserrat. Part 4. 1942. Fighting. 1. The old year, triumphant only at its close, had achieved a level of violence and disaster which set the tone for the new. Just before Christmas, two Allied countries had sustained naval losses of shocking dimensions. Britain had lost two great ships, Prince of Wales and Repulse, in a single bombing attack, and America at Pearl Harbour had suffered a crippling blow which robbed her of half her effective fleet at one stroke. Proper uproar it must have been, Lockhart overheard someone in the Mestex say, and another anonymous voice answered, biggest surprise since Ma caught her tits in the mangle. The attack brought America into the war, an ally coming to the rescue at a most crucial moment, but her principal war was never the Atlantic. That lifeline remained from beginning to end the war to the British and Canadian navies. America turned her eyes to the Pacific, where she had to do much to stem the furious tide of the Japanese advance. In the Atlantic, the Battle of Escort against U-Boats still saw the same contestants in the ring, now coming up for the fourth round, the bloodiest so far. For now, the battle was in spate. Now the wild and vicious blows of both sides were storming towards a climax. The U-Boats had a clear ascendancy, and they used it with the utmost skill and complete ruthlessness. Germany started the year with a total of 260 of them. She added to it at the rate of 20 a month, a swelling fleet which made it possible for her to keep 100 U-boats at sea in the Atlantic at the same time. Spread in a long line across the convoy routes, they intercepted and reported convoys as a matter of the simplest routine. This interception was combined with a perfected system of pack attack, by which 20 or more U-boats were homed onto a convoy and fell upon it, as one team with a series of repeated blows until its remnants reached safety. In the face of this crushing opposition, the Allied efforts seemed puny, and their countermeasures like the futile gestures of one slow wrestler caged in a ring with a dozen tormenting opponents. In the single month of March, 94 ships were sunk. In May, 125. In June, 144. Nearly five a day. The appalling rate of loss continued around the 100 mark, every month for the rest of the year. It was the nadir of the war at sea. It was, in fact, a tempo of destruction which would mean defeat for the Allies within a measurable period of time, if it were allowed to continue. The escorts did their best, aided by new offensive weapons and by the inclusion of small aircraft carriers, converted merchantmen, accompanying the convoys. In addition, they initiated a scheme of support groups, self-contained striking forces of six or eight escorts, which were kept continuously at sea, ready to go to the help of hard-pressed convoys. These combined efforts showed results which were the best of the war so far. In the first seven months of the war, 42 U-boats were sunk, and in the best month of all, November, 16 of them were destroyed. 
This was double the rate of destruction of the previous year, but then the U-boats were doubling their successes as well. On balance, the honours, if that was the right word for so inhuman and treacherous a struggle, were going overwhelmingly to the enemy. Unless that tide could be stemmed and turned backwards, the Battle of the Atlantic was going to decide the whole war, and the Allied cause, squeezed and throttled by starvation, and the denial of war materials would collapse in ruins. It is, said Mr Churchill at one point, a war of groping and drowning, of ambuscade and stratagem, of science and seamanship. It was all that, and sometimes the thing was in terms still cruder. Sometimes the blood was thicker than the water. 2. For Compass Rose, there were special times which stuck in the memory, like insects of some unusually disgusting shape or colour, transfixed forever in a dirty web which no cleansing element could reach. There was the time of the dead helmsman. All these occasions had distinctive labels, given them either when they happened or in later recollection. It simplified the pleasure of reminiscence. This particular incident had a touch of operatic fantasy about it, which prompted Morel to say, at the end, I think we must have strayed into the Flying Dutchman country. It was a cold-blooded dismissal, but that was the way that all their thoughts and feelings were moving now. The ship's lifeboat was first seen by Baker during the forenoon watch, it was sailing boldly through the convoy, giving way to no man, and pursued by a formidable chorus of sirens as, one after another, the ships had to alter course to avoid collision. The captain, summoned to the bridge, stared at it through his glasses. He could see that it must have been adrift for many days. The hull was blistered, and the sail, tattered and discoloured, had been strained out of shape and spilled half the wind. But in the stern, the single figure of the helmsman, hunched over the tiller, held his course confidently, According to the strict rule of the road, he had, as a sailing ship, the right of way, though it took a brave man to put the matter to the test without, at least, paying some attention to the result. It seemed that he was steering for Compass Rose, which was a sensible thing to do, even if it did give several ships captains heart failure in the process. The escorts were better equipped for dealing with survivors, and he probably realised it. Ericsson stopped his ship and waited for the small boat to approach, which held its course steadily and then at the last moment veered with a gust of wind and passed close under Compass Rose's stern. A seaman standing on the depth charge rails threw a heaving line and they all shouted. The man, so far from making any effort to reach them, did not even look up and the boat sailed past and began to draw away. He must be deaf, said Baker in a puzzled voice, but he can't be blind as well. He's the deafest man you'll ever meet, said Ericsson, suddenly grim. He put Compass Rose to slow ahead again and brought her round on the same course as the boat was taking. Slowly they overhauled it, stealing the wind so that presently it came to a stop. Someone in the waist of the ship threw a grappling hook across and the boat was drawn alongside. The man still sat there patiently, seeming unaware of them. The boat rocked gently as leading seaman Phillips jumped down into it. He smiled at the helmsman. Now then, chum, he called out encouragingly. And then... Puzzled by some curious air of vacancy in the face opposite, he bent closer and put out his hand. When he straightened up again, he was grey with shock and disgust. He looked up at Lockhart, waiting above him in the waist of the ship. Sir, he began, then he flung himself across and vomited over the side of the boat. It was as Ericsson had guessed. The man must have been dead for many days. The bare feet splayed on the floorboards were paper thin. The hand gripping the tiller was not much more than a claw. The eyes that had seemed to stare so boldly ahead were empty sockets, some seabirds plunder. The face was burnt black by a hundred suns, 
pinched and shriveled by a hundred bitter nights. The boat had no compass and no chart. The water barrel was empty and yawning at the seams. It was impossible to guess how long he had been sailing on that senseless voyage. Alone, hopeful in death as in life, but steering directly away from the land, which was already a thousand miles astern. That was the time of the bombed ship, which was the finest exercise in patience they ever had. It started in mid-ocean with a corrupt wireless message, of which the only readable parts were the prefix SOS and a position in latitude and longitude, about 400 miles to the north of their convoy. The rest was a jumble of code groups, which, even when reconstructed, did not yield much beyond the words bomb, fire and abandon. It must have been difficult for Viperus to decide whether it was worth detaching an escort for this forlorn effort of detection. There was no reason to suppose that the position given was accurate, and they could ill spare a ship for a long search. And this, quite apart from the fact that the message might be false, the result of a light-hearted wireless operator amusing himself, or an attempted decoy by a U-boat, both of which had happened before. But evidently, Viperus decided that it was worth a chance. Her next signal was addressed to Compass Rose and read, Search in accordance with SOS timed 1300 today. A little later, she reopened RT communication to add, Goodbye. The first part of the assignment was easy. It boiled down to turning 90 degrees to port, increasing to 15 knots and holding that course and speed for 26 hours on end. It was the sort of run they all enjoyed, like a dog let off a leash normally in the grasp of the slowest old lady in the world. Now there was no restraint on them, no convoy to worry about, no senior officer to wake from his siesta and ask them what on earth they were doing. Compass Rose raced on, with a rising wind and sea on her quarter, sometimes making her sheer widely till the quartermaster could haul her back on her course again. She was alone, like a ship in a picture, crossing cold grey waves towards an untenanted horizon. She ran all through the night, and all next morning, not a stick, not a sail, not a smudge of smoke did she see. It was a continuous reminder of how vast this ocean was, how formidable a hiding place. There were hundreds of ships at sea in the Atlantic all the time, and yet Compass Rose seemed to have it to herself, with nothing to show that she was not, suddenly, the last ship left afloat in the world. But when they had run the distance and reached the likely search area, the phrase hiding place returned again, this time to mock them. It was mid-afternoon of a brisk lowering February day, with darkness due to fall within three hours. They were looking for a ship which might have been bombed, might have been sunk, might have been playing the fool, might be in a different longitude altogether, and halfway round the world from this one. On a sheet of squared tracing paper, Ericsson plotted out a box search, a course for compass rows consisting of a series of squares gradually extending downwind in the direction the ship should have drifted. Its sides were each seven miles long. Every two hours the area shifted another seven miles to the northeastward. Then he laid it off on the chart so as to keep a check on their final position, and they settled down to quarter the ocean according to this pattern. It was very cold. Darkness came down and with it the first drift of snow. As hour succeeded hour, with nothing sighted and no hint of a contact on the radar screen, they began to lose the immediate sense of quest, and to be preoccupied only with the weather. The wind was keen, the snow was penetratingly cold, the water racing past was wild and noisy. These were the realities, and the early feeling of urgency in their search was progressively blunted, progressively forgotten. Hours before, it seemed, there had been something about a carefully worked out, meticulous investigation of this area, but that was a very long time ago, and the bombed ship, if she existed, and her crew, if they still lived, were probably somewhere quite different. 
and in the meantime it was excruciatingly cold and unpleasant. At midnight the snow was a whirling blizzard. At 4am when Lockhart came on watch, it was to a bitter, pitch-black darkness that stung his face to the marrow when he had scarcely mounted the bridge. "'Any sign of them?' he shouted to Morel. "'Nothing. If they're adrift in this, God help them.' It was nothing all that watch, and nothing when daylight came, and nothing all the morning. At midday the wind fell light and the snow diminished to an occasional drift, wafting gently past them as if hoping to be included in a Christmas card. Individually, without sharing their doubts, they began to wonder if the thing had not gone on long enough. The search had taken two days already, and during the last 24 hours they had swept nearly 600 square miles of water. The contract could not call for very much more. "'I've just remembered it's St Valentine's Day,' said Ferriby suddenly to Baker, during the idle hours of the afternoon watch. "'Put it down in the log,' growled Erickson, overhearing. "'There won't be any other entries.' It was unusual for him to admit openly to any sort of doubt or hesitation. They felt free now to question the situation themselves, even to give up and turn back and forget about it. A solid echo, which was presently reported on the radar, hardly broke through to their attention at first. But it was the ship all right, the ship they had been sent to find. They came upon her suddenly. She was masked until the last moment by the gently whirling snow, and then suddenly she emerged and lay before them, a small, untidy freighter with Swedish funnel markings. She was derelict, drifting downwind like some wretched tramp sagging his way through a crowd. She listed heavily. Her bridge and forepart were blistered and fire-blackened, and her forebridge itself, which seemed to have taken a direct hit from a bomb or a shell, looked like a twisted metal cage from which something violent and strong had ripped away to freedom. One lifeboat was missing, the other hung down from the falls, half overturned and empty. There was nothing else in the picture. Compass Rose circled slowly, alert for any development, but there was no sound, no movement, save the snow falling lightly on the deserted upper deck. They sounded their siren, they fired a blank shot, nothing stirred. Presently they stopped and lowered a boat. Morel was in charge and with him were Rose, the young signalman, leading seaman Tonbridge, and a stoker named Evans. As they pulled away from Compass Rose, Ericsson leant over the side of the bridge, megaphone in hand. "'We have to keep moving,' he called out. "'This ship is too much of an attraction. Don't worry if you lose sight of us.' Morel waved, but did not answer. He was no longer thinking about Compass Rose. He was thinking, with the prickling of his scalp, of what he was going to find when he boarded the derelict. "'I am no good at this,' he thought, as they pulled across the short stretch of water that separated the two ships. "'No good at bombs, no good at blood.' no good at the brutal elements of disaster. When leading seaman Tombridge jumped onto the sloping deck with the painter and made the boat fast, it was all Morel could do to follow him over the side. You go, his subconscious voice was saying to Tombridge. I'll wait here while you take a look. It was not that he was afraid, within the normal meaning of the word, simply that he doubted his ability to deal with the disgusting unknown. In silence, he climbed and stood on the deck, a tall, grave young man in a yellow duffel coat and sea boots, looking through falling snow towards the outline of the shattered bridge. He said to Stoker Evans, have a look below, see how deep she's flooded, and to Tombridge, stay by the boat, and to Sigmund Rose, come with me. Then they began to walk forward, their feet rang loudly on the iron deck. Their tracks in the snow were fresh, like children's in a garden before breakfast. Round them was complete silence, complete, empty stillness, such as no ship that was not fundamentally cursed would ever show. It was not as bad as Morel had expected, in the sense that he did not faint, or vomit, or disgrace himself. The actual details were horrifying. The bridge had taken the full force of a direct hit by a bomb. 
there had been a small fire started, and a larger one farther forward, between the well deck and the forecastle. It was difficult to determine exactly how many people had been on the bridge when it was hit. None of the bodies were complete, and the scattered fragments seemed at a first glance to add up to a whole vanished regiment of men. There must have been about six of them. Now they were in dissolution, and their remnants hung like some appalling tapestry round the bulkheads, gleaming here and there with a dull gleam of half-dried paint. The whole gory enclosure seemed to have been decorated with blood and tissue. When Father papered the parlour, hummed Morel to himself, he never thought of this. The helmsman's hand was still clutching the wheel, but it was only a hand. It grew out of the air. Tatters of uniforms, of entrails, tufts of hair met the eye at every turn. On one flat surface, the imprint of a skull in profile, impregnated into the paintwork, stood out like a revolting street-corner caricature, stenciled in human skin and fragments of bone. "'You died with your mouth open,' said Morel, looking at this last with eyes which seemed to have lost their capacity to communicate sensation to the brain. "'I hope you were saying something polite.' He walked to the open side of the bridge, high above the water, and looked out. The snow still fell gently and lazily, dusting the surface of the sea for a moment before it melted. There was nothing round them except anonymous greyness. The afternoon light was failing. Compass Rose came into view momentarily and then vanished. He turned back to Rose, who stood waiting with his signal lamp, and they stared at each other across the space of the bridge. Each of their faces had the same serious concentration, the same wish to accept this charnel house and be unmoved by it. It was part of their war, the sort of thing they were trained for, the sort of thing they now took in their stride, sometimes without effort, sometimes with. I suppose Rose has looked at all this and looked away again, thought Morel. I suppose he is waiting for me to say something, or to take him down the ladder and away from the bridge. That would be my own choice too. He cleared his throat. We'll see what Evans has to say and then send a signal. The ship could not be got going again, but she was fit to be towed, Though the engine room and one hold were deeply flooded, the water was no longer coming in and she might remain afloat indefinitely. That was the outline of the signal which Rose presently sent across to Compass Rose. Reading it, Ericsson had to make up his mind whether to start the towing straight away or to cast around for the missing boat and its survivors. After two nights adrift in this bitter weather, there was little chance of their being alive. But if the bombed ship would remain afloat, it would not matter spending another day or so on the search. Perhaps Morel had better stay where he was, though. He could keep an eye on things, and there must be a lot of tidying up to do. Remain on board, he signalled to Morel finally. I'm going to search for the lifeboat and return tomorrow morning. Something made him add, are you quite happy about being left? Happy, thought Morel. Now there was a word. It was now nearly nightfall. They were to be left alone in this floating coffin for over twelve hours of darkness, with the snow to stare at, the sea to listen to, and a bridge full of corpses for company. Happiness is relative, he began dictating to Rose, and then he changed his mind. The moment did not really deserve humour. Reply, quite all right, he said shortly. Then he called to Tombridge and Evans, and took them back with him to the bridge. That was where a start must be made. Morel was never to forget that night. They used the remains of daylight for cleaning up. The increasing gloom was a blessing, making just tolerable this disgusting operation. They worked in silence, hard breathing, not looking closely at what they were doing. The things they had to dispose of disappeared steadily over the side and were hidden by the merciful sea. Only once was the silence broken by leading seaman Tombridge. Pity we haven't got a hose, sir, he said, straightening up from a corner of the bridge, which had kept him busy for some minutes. 
Morel did not answer him. No one did. The place where they stood, though blurred now by shadow, was eloquent enough. They made a meal off the emergency rations in the boat and boiled some tea on the spirit stove they found in the galley. Then they settled down for the night in the cramped chart room behind the bridge. There were mattresses and blankets and a lamp to give them some warmth. It was good enough for one night on board if they did not start thinking. Morel started thinking. His thoughts destroyed the hope of sleep and drove him outside onto the upper deck. There was no comfort in the sleeping men close to him, only anger at the relief they had found. He felt that if he stayed, he would have to invent some pretext for waking them up. He made his footfall soft as he went down the ladder. He made his breathing imperceptible as he crossed the well deck. The hand that pushed aside the canvas curtain screening the forecastle was the hand of a conspirator. He took a step forward and felt in front of him a hollow emptiness. He struck a match and found that he was in a large mess hall, full of shadows, full of its own deserted silence. The match flared. He saw a long table with plates set out on it, plates with half-eaten helpings of stew, crumbled squares of bread, knives and forks set down hurriedly at the moment of crisis. None of those meals would ever be finished now. All the men who had set down the knives and forks were almost certainly dead. I am thinking in clichés, he thought, as the match spluttered and went out. But clichés were as effective as thoughts freshly minted, when the reality which they clothed pressed in so closely and was backed by such weight of crude fact. Pursued by ghosts, he walked aft along the snow-covered upper deck. The wind whined on a strange note in the rigging. The water gurgled close under his feet. The ship was restless, needing to fight the sea all the time. There was no comfort to be found under the open sky. The deck held too many shadows. The unfamiliar shape of it had too many surprises. And suppose there were other surprises. Suppose the ship were not deserted. Suppose a mad seaman with an axe rushed him from the next blind corner. Suppose he found fresh footprints in the snow, where none of them had trodden. At the base of the mast, a shadow moved. Morel gripped the pockets of his duffel coat, his nerves screaming. The shadow moved again, sliding away for him. He roared out, Stop! The cat mewed and fled. Morning came, and with it Compass rose. She had nothing to report. No boats, no survivors. And Morel, in a sense, had nothing to report either. A heaving line was passed from Compass Rose, and then a light grass rope, and then the heavy towing hawser. There was no windlass to haul this on board the bombed ship, and Morel's party had to manhandle it in foot by foot, straining against a dead weight of wire, which at times seemed as if it would never reach them. But finally they made it fast and gave the signal, and the tow started. They made less than three knots, even in good weather. It took them ten days of crawling to finish the journey. Each morning, as soon as it was light, Morel waved a greeting to Lockhart. Each evening, as darkened ship was piped, Lockhart waved goodbye to Morel. Day after day, night after night, the two ships crept over the water, both useless save for this single purpose, both doomed by the umbilical tie to be any U-boat sitting shot. When at the mouth of the Mersey they parted at last and Morel came aboard, it was like waking from a nightmare which one had despaired of surviving. Sorry to leave, asked Lockhart ironically, as Morel came up to the bridge. No, answered Morel, fingering his ten days' growth of beard. No, I'm not. He looked at the ship astern of them, now in the charge of two harbour tugs. I may say that the idea of the convict missing his chains is purely a novelist's conception of life. (laughs) 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. was the time, which was rather difficult to label, they mostly knew it as the time of the captain's meeting. This time was under a Gibraltar convoy, a convoy in the same bad tradition as most of the Gibraltar rims. There had been a steady wastage of ships all the way southwards, and although they were now within two days of the end of the trip, the U-boat pack was still with them. Ericsson seemed to be showing particular interest in a ship at the front line of the convoy. Often he would train his glasses on it for minutes at a time, and she was the one he always looked for as soon as daylight came up. She survived until the last day, and then when dawn broke after a night of disaster, she was no longer in her station, and her place in the van of the convoy had been taken by the next ship astern. At first light, the customary signal came from Vipers. Following ships were sunk last night. Fort James, Eriskay, Bulstrode Manor, Glen McCurtain. Amend convoy lists accordingly. There was something in Ericsson's manner as he read this signal which discouraged comment. He remained on the bridge for a full hour, staring silently at the convoy, before saying suddenly to Wells, Take a signal. To escorts in company from Compass Rose. Please report any survivors you may have from Glen McCurtain. The answering signals came in very slowly. They did not make cheerful reading. Vipers and two other escorts sent nil reports. The corvette in the rear position signalled two seamen, one Chinese fireman. The rescue ship, detailed to look after survivors, sent first officer, two seamen, one fireman, Five Lascars. They waited, but that seemed to be all. Glen McCurtain may have gone down quickly. Farabee, who had the watch, said tentatively, Not many picked up, sir. No, said Ericsson. Not many. He looked towards the horizon astern of them, and then walked to his chair and sat down heavily. Presently, a merchant ship in the rear of the convoy started flashing to them. Wells took the signal, muttering impatiently to himself. Evidently, the operating was not up to acceptable naval standards. 
Message from that Polish packet, sir, he said to Ericsson. It's a bit rocky. We did see your signal by mistake, he read out, his voice slightly disparaging. We have one man from that ship. Ask them who it was, said Ericsson. His voice was quiet, but there was such acute tension in it that everyone on the bridge stared at him. Wells began to flash the question, signalling very slowly with frequent pauses and repetitions. There was a long wait, then the Polish ship began to answer. Wells read it out as it came across. The man is fourth officer, he began. Then he started to spell, letter by letter. E-R-I-C-S-O-N. Wells looked up from the signal lamp. Ericsson. Same name as yours, sir. Yes, said Ericsson. Thank you, Wells. There was a time, a personal time for Lockhart, which he knew as the time of the burnt man. Ordinarily, he did not concern himself a great deal with looking after survivors. Crowther, the sick birth attendant, had proved himself sensible and competent. And unless there were more cases than one man could cope with, Lockhart left him to get on with his work alone. But now and again, as the bad year progressed, there was an overflow of injured or exhausted men who needed immediate attention. And it was on one of these occasions, when the night had yielded nearly 40 survivors from two ships, that Lockhart found himself back again at his old job of ship's doctor. The small two-berth sick bay was already filled. The work to be done was, as in the old days, waiting for him in the forecastle. As he stepped into the crowded, badly lit space, he no longer felt the primitive revulsion of two years ago, when all this was new and harassing. But there was nothing changed in the dismal picture. Nothing was any the less crude or moving or repellent. There were the same rows of survivors, wet through dirt street shivering, the same reek of oil and seawater, the same relief on one face, the same remembered terror on another. There were the same people drinking tea or retching their stomachs up or telling their story to anyone who would listen. Crowther had marshalled the men needing attention in one corner, and here again the picture was the same, wounded men, exhausted men, men in pain afraid to die, men in a worse agony, hoping not to live. Crowther was bending over one of these last, a seaman whose filthy overalls had been cut away to reveal a splintered kneecap. As soon as he looked, the rest of the casualties over, Lockhart knew at once which one of them had the first priority. He picked his way across the forecastle and stood over the man, who was being gently held by two of his shipmates. It seemed incredible that he was still conscious, still able to advertise his agony. By rights, he should have been dead, not moaning, not trying to pluck something from his breast. He had sustained deep and cruel first-degree burns. From his throat to his waist, the whole raw surface had been flayed and roasted, as if he'd been caught too long on a spit that had stopped turning. He now gave out appropriately a kitchen smell, indescribably horrible. What the first touch of salt water on his body must have felt like, past imagination. He got copped by a flashback from the boiler, said one of the men holding him. Burning oil. Can you fix him? Fix him, thought Lockhart. I wish I could fix him in his coffin right now. He forced himself to bend down and draw close to this sickening object. Above the scored and shriveled flesh, the man's face, bereft of eyelashes, eyebrows and the front portion of his scalp, looked expressionless and foolish. There was no lack of expression in the eyes which were liquid with pain and surprise. If the man could have bent his head and looked at his own chest, thought Lockhart, he would give up worrying and ask for a revolver straight away. He turned and called across to Crowther. What have you got for burns? Crowther rummaged in his first aid satchel. This, sir, he said, and passed something across. A dozen willing hands relayed it to Lockhart, 
as if it were the elixir of life itself. It was in fact a small tube of ointment, about the size of a toothpaste tube. On the label was the picture of a smiling child and the inscription, for the relief of burns, use sparingly. Use sparingly, thought Lockhart. If I used it as if it were platinum dust, I'd still need about two tonnes of it. He held the small tube in his hand and looked down again at the survivor. One of the men holding him said, Here's the doctor. He'll fix you up right away. And the fringeless eyes came slowly round and settled on Lockhart's face, as if he were the ministering Christ himself. Lockhart took a swab of cotton wool, put some of the ointment on it, swallowed a deep revulsion and started to stroke very gently the area of the burnt chest. Just before he began, he said, It's a soothing ointment. I suppose it's natural that he should scream, thought Lockhart presently, shutting his ears. All the old-fashioned pictures showed a man screaming as soon as the barber surgeon started to operate, while his friends plied the patient with rum or knocked him out with a mallet. The trouble was that the man was still so horrifyingly alive. He pulled and wrenched at the two men holding him, while Lockhart, stroking and swabbing with a mother's tenderness, removed layer after layer of his flesh. For the other trouble was that, however gently he was touched, the raw tissue went on and on, coming away with the cotton wool. Lockhart was aware that the ring of men who were watching him had fallen silent. He felt, rather than saw, their faces contract with pity and disgust as he swabbed the ointment deeper and deeper, and the flesh still flaked off like blistered paintwork. I wonder how long this can go on, he thought, as he saw, without surprise, that at one point he had laid bare a rib which gleamed with an astonishing cleanness and astringency. I don't think this is any good, he thought again, as the man fainted at last and the two sailors holding him turned their eyes towards Lockhart in question and disbelief. The ointment was almost finished. The raw chest now gaped at him like the foundation of some rotten building. Die, he thought, almost aloud, as he sponged once more near the throat, and a new layer of sinew came into view, laid bare like a lecturer's diagram. Please give up and die. I can't go on doing this, and I can't stop while you're alive. He heard a dozen men behind him draw in their breath sharply as a fresh area of skin suddenly crumbled under his most gentle hand and adhered to the cotton wool. Crowther, attracted by the focus of interest and now kneeling by his side, said, Any good, sir? And he shook his head. I'm doing wonders, he thought. Give me a job at a canning factory. Some blood flowed over the rib he had laid bare and he swabbed it off almost apologetically. Sorry, he thought. That was probably my fault. And then again, die, please die. I'm making a fool of myself, and certainly of you. You'll never be any use now, and we'll give you a lovely funeral, well out of sight. Suddenly and momentarily the man opened his eyes, and looked up at Lockhart with a deeper, more fundamental surprise, as if he had intercepted the thought, and was now aware that a traitor, not a friend, was touching him. He twisted his body, and a rippling spasm ran across the scorched flesh. Steady, Jock, said one of his friends, and die, thought Lockhart, yet again, squeezing the last smear of ointment from the tube and touching it with the shoulder muscle which immediately gave way and parted from its ligament. Die, do us all a favour, die! Aloud, he repeated with the utmost foolishness, it's a soothing ointment, but die now, his lips formed the words, don't be obstinate, no one wants you, you wouldn't want yourself if you could take a look, please die. Presently, obediently, but far too late. The man died. There was the time of the skeletons. It happened when Compass Rose was in a hurry, late one summer afternoon when she had been delayed for nearly half a day by a search for an aircraft which was reported down in the sea, a long way south of the convoy. 
She had not found the aircraft, nor any trace of it. Vipress had wireless to rejoin forthwith, and she was now hurrying to catch up before nightfall. The sea was glassy smooth, the sky a pale and perfect blue. The hands lounging on the upper deck were mostly stripped to the waist, enjoying the last hour of hot sunshine. It was a day for doing nothing elegantly, and for going nowhere at half speed. It seemed a pity that they had to force the pace, and even more of a pity when the radar operator got a suspicious contact several miles off their course, and they had to turn aside it to investigate. It's a very small echo, said the operator apologetically. Sort of muzzy, too. Better take a look, said Ericsson to Morel, who had called him to the bridge. You never know, he grinned. What does small and muzzy suggest to you? To Morel, it suggested an undersized man tacking up Regent Street after a thick night, but he glossed over the thought and instead said, It might be wreckage, sir, or a submarine, just a wash. Or porpoises, said Ericsson, who seemed in a better humour than he usually was after being woken up. Or seaweed, with very big sand fleas hopping about on top. It's a damned nuisance anyway. I didn't want to waste time. In the event, it wasted very little of their time, for compass rows ran the distance swiftly, and what they found did not delay them. It was Wells, the best pair of eyes in the ship, who first sighted the specks on the surface, specks which gradually grew until a mile or so away. They had become heads and shoulders, a cluster of men floating in the water. Survivors, by God, exclaimed Ericsson. I wonder how long they've been there. They were soon to know. Compass Rose ran on, the hands crowding to the rail to look at the men ahead of them. Momentarily, Ericsson recalled that other occasion when they had sped towards men in the water, only to destroy them out of hand. Not this time, he thought, as he reduced speed. Now he could make amends. He need not have bothered to slow down. He might well have ploughed through, the same as last time. He had thought it odd that the men did not wave or shout to Compass Rose, as they usually did. He had thought it odd that they did not swim even a little way towards the ship, to close the gap between death and life. Now he saw, through his glasses, that there was no gap to be closed, for the men, riding high out of the water, held upright by their life jackets, were featureless, bony images. Skeletons now for many a long day and night. There was something infinitely obscene in the collection of lolling corpses with bleached faces and white hairless heads, clustered together like men waiting for a bus which had gone by twenty years before. There were nine of them in that close corporation. They rode the water not more than four or five yards from each other. Here and there a couple had come together as if embracing. Compass rose circled, starting a wash which set the dead men bobbing and bowing to each other like performers in some infernal dance. Nine of them, thought Morel in horror. What is the correct noun of association? A school of skeletons? A core? They all saw that the men were roped together, a frayed and slimy strand of rope linked each one of them, tied round the waist and trailing languidly in the water. When the ripples of the ship's wash drove two of them apart, the rope between them tightened with a jerk and a splash. The other men swayed and bowed as if approving this evidence of comradeship. But this is crazy, thought Ericsson. This is the sort of thing you hope not to dream about. Compass Rose still circled as he looked down at the company of dead men. They must have been there for months. There was not an ounce of flesh under the yellow skins, not a single reminder of warmth or manhood. They had perished, and they had gone on perishing beyond the grave, beyond the moment when the last man alive found rest. He was hesitating about picking them up, but he knew that he would not. Compass Rose was in a hurry. There was nothing to be gained by fishing them out, sewing them up and putting them back again. And anyway... But why rope together? asked Morel, puzzled as the ship completed her last circle and drew away, and left the men behind. It doesn't make sense. Ericsson had been thinking. It might, he said, in a voice infinitely subdued. 
If they were in a lifeboat and the boat was being swamped, they might tie themselves together so as not to lose touch during the night. It would give them a better chance of being picked up. And they weren't, said Morel after a pause. I wonder how long. But he did not finish that sentence except in his thoughts. He was wondering how long it had taken the nine men to die and what it was like for the others when the first man died, and what it was like when half of them had gone, and what it was like for the last man left alive, wrote to his tale of eight dead shipmates, still hopeful, but surely feeling himself doomed by their company. Perhaps, thought Ericsson, he went mad in the end, and started to swim away and towed them all after him, shouting until he lost his strength as well as his wits, and gave up, and turned back to join the majority. There was that time that was the worst time of all, the time that seemed to synthesise the whole corpse-ridden ocean. The time of the burning tanker. Aboard Compass Rose, as in every escort that crossed the Atlantic, there had developed an unstinting admiration of the men who sailed in oil tankers. They lived, for an entire voyage of three or four weeks, as a man living on top of a keg of gunpowder. The stuff they carried, the lifeblood of the whole war, was the most treacherous cargo of all. A single torpedo, a single small bomb, even a stray shot from a machine gun, could transform their ship into a torch. Many times this had happened. In Compass Rose's convoys, many times they had had to watch these men die or pick up the tiny remnants of a tanker's crew, men who seemed to display not the slightest hesitation at the prospect of signing on again for the same job as soon as they reached harbour. It was these expendable seamen who were the real petrol coupons, the things one could wangle from the garage on the corner, and whenever sailors saw or read of petrol being wasted or stolen, they saw the cost in lives as well, peeping from behind the headline, or the musical joke, feeding their anger and disgust. Appropriately, it was an oil tanker which gave the men in Compass Rose, as spectators, the most hideous hour of the whole war. She was an oil tanker they had grown rather fond of. She was the only tanker in a homeward-bound convoy of 50 ships which had run into trouble, and they had been cherishing her, as they sometimes cherished ships they recognised from former convoys, or ships with queer funnels, or ships that told lies about their capacity to keep up with the rest of the fleet. On this occasion, she had won their affection by being obviously the number one target of the attacking U-boats. On three successive nights, they had sunk the ship ahead of her, the ship astern, and the corresponding ship at the next column. And as the shelter of land approached, it became of supreme importance to see her through to the end of the voyage. But her luck did not hold. On their last day of the open sea, with the Scottish hills only just over the horizon, the attackers found their mark and she was mortally struck. She was torpedoed, in broad daylight on a lovely sunny afternoon. There had been the usual scare, the usual waiting, the usual noise of an underwater explosion, and then, from this ship they had been trying to guard, a colossal pillar of smoke and flame came billowing out, and in a minute the long, shapely hull was on fire, almost from end to end. The ships on either side of her, and the ships astern, fanned outwards like men stepping past a hole in the road. Compass Rose cut in towards her, intent on bringing help. But no help had yet been devised that could be any use to a ship so stricken. Already the oil that had been thrown skyward by the explosion had bathed the ship in flame, and now, as more and more oil came gushing out of the hull and spread over the water all around her, she became the centrepiece of a huge conflagration. There was still one gap in the solid wall of fire near her bows and above this on the forecastle. Her crew began to collect, small figures running and stumbling in furious haste towards the only chance they had for their lives. They could be seen waving, shouting, hesitating before they jumped, and Compass Rose crept in a little closer, as much as she dared, and called back to them to take the chance. 
It was dangerously, unbearably hot, even at this distance. And the shouting, and the men waving their arms, backed by the flaming, roaring ship, with her curtain of smoke and burning oil, closed round her, completed an authentic picture of hell. There were about twenty men on the forecastle. If they were going to jump, they would have to jump soon. And then, in ones and twos, hesitating, changing their minds, they did begin to jump. Successive splashes showed suddenly white against the dark grey of the hull, and soon all twenty of them were down and on their way across. From the bridge of Compass Rose and from the men thronging her rail came encouraging shouts as the gap of water between them narrowed. Then they noticed that the oil, spreading over the surface of the water and catching fire as it spread, was moving faster than any of the men could swim. They noticed it before the swimmers, but soon the swimmers noticed it too. They began to scream as they swam and to look back over their shoulders and thrash and claw their way through the water as if suddenly insane. But one by one they were caught. The older ones went first, and then the men who couldn't swim fast because of their life jackets, and then the strong swimmers without life jackets, last of all. But, perhaps, it was better not to be a strong swimmer on that day, because none of them were strong enough. One by one they were overtaken and licked by flame and fried and left behind. Compass Rose could not lessen the gap, even for the last few who nearly made it. Black and filthy clouds of smoke were now coursing across the sky overhead, darkening the sun. The men on the upper deck were pouring with sweat. With their own load of fuel oil and their ammunition, they could go no closer. Even for these frying men whose faces were inhumanly ugly with fear and who screamed at them for help. Soon indeed they had to give ground to the stifling heat and back away and desert the few that were left, defeated by the mortal risk to themselves. Waiting a little way off, they were entirely helpless. They stood on the bridge and did nothing and said nothing. One of the lookouts, a young seaman of not more than seventeen, was crying as he looked towards the fire. He made no sound, but the tears were streaming down his face. It was not easy to say what sort of tears they were. Of rage? Of pity? Of the bitterness of watching the men dying so cruelly, and not being able to do a thing about it? Compass Rose stayed till they were all gone, and the area of sea with the ship and the men inside it was burning steadily and remorselessly, and then she sailed on. Looking back, as they did quite often, they could see the pillar of smoke from nearly 50 miles away. At nightfall there was still a glow and sometimes a flicker on the far horizon. But the men were not there anymore. Only the monstrous funeral pyre remained.